How could such a thing happen on a goddamn lake? exclaimed another pat frightened passenger. The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando. On a goddamn lake. Goddamn lake. <laughs> da da dee da dee dee. That's better. I got it now. That's a Gord's Golden Hit. It's kind of cool. Like uh, We were in that Zoom the other night, and Terry mentioned that podcast that he was just listening to recently. And I went and I was listening to it over the last couple of days. There's some cool, cool facts in that Natural Disasters podcast about the Great Storm of 1913 that I didn't realize, actually. One of the coolest things that I learned was we have a very popular shipwreck in the Great Lakes. Nothing spectacular, you know, nothing deep and monumental. Just one of those normal, easy, new wrecks that everybody goes out to dive. The wreck of the sport. Generally, people living in this area, it's one of your first shipwreck dives, right? It's a tugboat kind of sitting over on its side a little bit. It's only in 40 feet of water. But it's, it's a wooden. Cool... Yeah, I was going to say it's a wooden tug, though. Yeah, it's a cool woody. wooden. It's not a, not a new tug. <laughs> Steel. Yeah, it's an oldie tug. Yeah, it's together, but it's small, tools and all kinds of stuff all over. But it's, it's a great introduction for people into Great Lakes dives it's you know it's one of those first shipwrecks a lot of new divers get to go out and do but i learned from that podcast that that was the tugboat that took the hard hat diver out to identify the charles s price when it was the mystery ship that was bob <laughs> bobbing on the surface after uh-huh. after the great storm and it later sunk a few years later you didn't know that? I thought you knew that. You know, after hearing it in that show, I, I was like, I had to have known this. You did know that. I knew that. You knew that. Come on now. Everybody knows that. Okay. Well, hey, welcome back to every uh welcome back to the Great Dive <laughs> Shit. Jesus Christ. Hey everybody, <laughs> welcome back to the Great Dive Podcast. If you're you, uh, here with old uh, Jamesy. Have you not had any coffee yet, James? And you're here with need another cup, need a cup of coffee, Jamesy. <laughs> you're here with uh, on a second cup, Brando. Very nice. Hey, it's November. November is here. The the gales are blowing, matey. Is it no shave November for you, James? Because uh, you're somewhat shaven. 
I, I just shaved Monday. But what I think what was cool is the old the old November witch that was the white hurricane that they called it because it I mean it, it was snowing like a like a wild snow. Cleveland was buried in, in the absolute like record snow for the town of Cleveland. Like wiped that town out. Is it a town or a city? It's a little town full of streetcars and. That's a city back then. That's still a city. Yeah, yeah, it's still a city. It's damn city. I just uh, not I'm to try- derail the conversation. I'm trying to create uh, <laughs> an image, like uh, in the minds of people, it makes them think of that little town, that, that like, city, like what you see in the Christmas story. That little. It's not Cleveland. And uh, you know, back in. Uh, the, that great storm it's kind of exactly what was happening and when that mm-hmm. where they were like turn of the century right in early 1900s and there was uh, that crazy storm that was building up in Alaska that moved its way down and then there was that weird warm storm down in like the Appalachian Mountains that was moving up and they collided and just wreaked havoc for 3 days out on the Great Lakes I bet our listeners didn't realize they were going to get a little meteor meteorological meteorological. Is that right? Go ahead, try meteor meteorological. You always you always jump all over me whenever I whenever I, I stumble on a word. I, Go ahead, I, give it another. I don't jump all try. over you. I try to uh, constructive you know, criticism. Anyway, I didn't know we were going to get the weather lesson. The uh, it's pretty good. Our listeners didn't know that. Well, it's you know it just it sparked my interest like, again, like again listening to that show that Terry told us about. What they had hit was like back in the 1910s. It was way, it was still before there was really like that a, a real natural weather service. And it was just right. a bunch of a bunch of local weathermen that were meteorologists that had to telegraph in their data to a central place. All of it had to be to Washington, D.C. by before 8 a.m. so that they could compile it all together to give that 8 a.m. report. And they had a, a map of the United States that they basically pencil drew in, like all those line patterns, like, like hand drew what the current weather data was based off of all these like key reports. And the guy in Cleveland like knew the proverbial shit was hitting the fan. Mm-hmm. And just couldn't get these boat captains to really listen to him at the time because the the, the data was so imperfect. I, I guess you could say that they the, the captains felt so much better by just how they personally felt that day as to whether the, right. the weather. You know, they're like, ah, I'm using me old trusty <laughs> trusty <laughs> rabbit's foot to tell me. I'm using me. me old broken knee from from when I was yeah. I sprained my ankle when I was 12, and that's how I, I tell the weather. Not to mention... I, uh, I, I decide the weather by the wrinkles <laughs> in me bacon every morning. What do you... Uh, he's not a Chinese uh, I Ching specialist, or I Ching specialist. I throw my sticks down, and uh, of course he's got to be an Irish captain in Cleveland, but... I also don't think there was a big emphasis on, you know, safety. It was more on get the get the cargo, get the goods to where they need to go or get your your cargo picked up 
and move as quick as possible. And you were kind of, I think you were known for, uh, at least that's the feel I get. You were known for, I'll take this ship through any storm, you know. So it was actually welcomed as a challenge. Like, oh, you don't think I can make it? Well, yeah, I think there was a lot of that in those days. I, I bet you even still through today, you know, the, the, there's oh, yeah. legends of, of ship captains that really had the... Cajones? I was no. going to say balls. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to... Spanish. It's my <laughs> Spanish coming through. Be a little bit more um, debonair. But, but yeah, like, like having the... I think cojones, cojones is more debonair than than balls. <laughs> right, I know. <laughs> so we're going with yours. But to to be able to tell that story of white knuckling it through twenty, thirty, even almost forty foot waves—they're at least that big. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. The um, well, I mean, thirty foot waves. I mean, those are coming over the ships, over like even over like the superstructure of these ships, like back in back in the 1900s, right? Because you, we're in a time where it's a lot of a lot of wood ships still. The, the the steel ships are really just getting going out on the Great Lakes. I, I picked up this book, November's Fury. I was telling you about that the other day, right? And in there, they talk about this guy. Um, Michael Schumacher, in the introduction, he says, if ever there were a perfect storm on the Great Lakes, it would be one that pounded the lakes from November 7th through November 10th, 1913, leaving a wake of destruction unlike anything ever seen on fresh water at any point in recorded history. By the time the storm had blown out of the region, 12 boats had sunk, 31 more had been grounded on rocks or beaches, and dozens more were severely damaged. More than 250 men lost their lives. Eight boats with their entire crews were lost in a single day on Lake Huron alone. Hmm. But you, you, you talk about the, um, like the legends of those captains, and he mentions it here in this book too, and they were talking about it on that podcast, is the chief engineer for the Charles S. Price backed out of that trip like at the last minute it's kind of a cool story you know one of those you know he's got a wife and you know five six kids or something like that and wakes up and says not today i got a i got a bad feeling about this one it's me old broken ankle from <laughs> ni- 1902 me old, <laughs> me old bacon strips are <laughs> perpendicular today in, in an odd numbered count Tells me we should not board this morn. Uh, yeah, like you think you think like baseball pitchers are superstitious. Like, can you imagine like the the crew on a on a on a boat in November getting ready to go out into the Great Lakes? Oh yeah. <laughs> he says about Milton Smith. That was that guy. Like he said, tried but he could not shake the uneasy feeling he had about the boat's final upbound trip of the season. Sailors could be like that. They get a sense of foreboding, a feeling that something was about to go wrong. And that was it. Maritime lore spills over with stories about sailors' premonitions. They would resign their positions and return home, and their ships would sail and never be seen again. And old Milton Smith was just 
another one of those guys and another one of those days. Or he's really hungover and he was just calling in sick. <laughs> well, that was kind of like the, uh, um, yeah, that's kind of like old Dennis Hale there from the Morel, yeah, right? Hale, <laughs> he's, yeah. That's more him. <laughs> <laughs> but he wasn't he wasn't the chief engineer. I mean that's that the chief engineer, yes. by the way, is like like a pretty high level job. I mean, you've got the captain and you got the chief engineer and it, and it continues down from there. So it's, it's it's basically the second highest paid job on one of those freighters. And if you if you pull a move like Milton Call in Smith, sick. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. you you drop in status. Like well, so yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. like he spent years getting to getting to that position and he had this feeling that he was willing to sacrifice his his uh his spot on the old pecking order on that ship he says so it was no small matter when smith met with captain william black in the skipper's office black of course tried to talk to smith into reconsidering and finishing out the shipping season the price had only two loads left on our schedule. This one, a run of coal from Ashtabula, Ohio to Milwaukee, and the season closer immediately after this one up to Lake Superior where the price would pick up a load of iron ore for a return trip to Ohio. A long, easy winter layup was straight ahead. That's it. Just got to get, get down and back. And that shipwreck of the price was relatively new at the time. Only th- like three years old, it was one of the early steel hulled freighters, over five hundred feet long. I mean, this is a big, bad ship for the time, and they thought it was like a big, indestructible ox of a ship. They say, unsinkable, unsinkable. It's like you if know- you want to curse a, a <laughs> ship to be sunk, you say that it's unsinkable, and you <laughs> exactly. are guaranteed it will sink sometime in its life in its active life right exactly isn't that not true also i was thinking about this too while i was listening to the the story right because you've got like the carruthers which was like another ship that went down and the carruthers was one of the biggest ships ever built like if i was a shipbuilder i would never build the biggest ship (laughs) Right, right right i'd always go like three feet shorter because you know if you if if it's the biggest it's the biggest most glamorous ship no one would have thought well you just said it was the biggest you know that thing's like made for a story Mm -hmm. yeah good uh good point for sure like if i'm if i'm gonna be a captain on a great lake ship and they go you can sail in this storm the biggest ship ever made it'll be the safest or this dumpy one that's 10 feet smaller. <laughs> I'm taking the dumpy one that doesn't have all the glamour to it. You know what I mean? Yeah, but then the headlines will be, in an odd twist of fate. <laughs> of course, for me, of course it would be. Yeah. 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 This dumpy 10-foot shorter <laughs> ship went down in 10-mile-an-hour uh, winds. <laughs> Captain James Emott thought that he could outsmart the November witch. She still got them. I, I told you I also grabbed this other book called The Living Great Lakes, which looks really cool by, by a Jerry Dennis. But he's got a chapter in here about the gales of November where he says, November is the deadliest month. Ask any sailor. It's when the lakes still embrace some of summer's heat, 
but the air above has turned to winter. A meteorologist for the National Weather Service once calculated that on average, the greatest difference between the temperature of the lakes and the temperature of the air above them occurs on November 10th. Ironically, that's when the old fits went down. That's right in the heart of the great storm of 1913. I think that's when like 1940 Armistice Day storm happened. That differential causes the remaining warmth in the lakes to be sucked into the air, releasing energy and creating wind. With so much energy available over such large bodies of water, even minor storms are intensified. Nobody knows how many ships have sunk in the Great Lakes. Estimates range from 4,000 to 10,000. The danger to ships is magnified because November is the end of the shipping season. The companies are trying to wring a little more profit from the year, will sometimes take greater risks than usual. Many ships have been wrecked on what was scheduled to be their final run of the season. Could also have something to do with not shaving. The crew not shaving. Perhaps... I think all I'm just going to put that out there. I'm just going to put I that think, out there. <laughs> uh, I think Great Lakes shipping uh, sailors were the first to start the no shave November. Yeah, and look what it what it's gotten them. It's uh, worst month of the year to be a Great Lakes sailor. So what you're saying is, if they would have just pulled out, pulled out the old straight razor while the while the waves were beating them around at 15 and 20 feet high. Oh, I like that clean shave might have negated the the growing of the additional 10 feet of wave height well i don't know if it's wave height alone that's doing the the you know damage there's a number of things and it could just be that they didn't shave and their relaxed attitude their lack of discipline bled into their everyday operation of the ship and they made mistakes there, there's the scientific explanation for the increase in shipwrecks in November in the Great Lakes, and it all has to do with no shave November. Well, listen, listen, like uh, like most people around the world today, I'm just going to accept your answer at face value. <laughs> uh, it, it seems pretty well researched in seems my opinion. Logical. I'll, I'll accept exactly. it. I'll accept it. Several November storms are legendary, and most of them occurred on or near that critical 10th day of the month. The great storm of 1913 began on November 7th and continued through the 11th. Often referred to as the Big Blow, it was the result of a freakish collision of weather fronts. One low-pressure cell of cold air roared down from Canada, while another swept east from the Rockies, absorbing heat as it passed over the Great Plains. The two fronts met over Lake Superior, absorbed additional energy from a third system rushing north from the Caribbean, and produced a massive storm that engulfed all five Great Lakes. Hurricane-force winds and waves as high as 30 feet sank 12 ships, 11 of them with all hands, damaged 25 others, and drowned between 250 and 300 mariners. Like, who in their right goddamn mind would go out on the Great Lakes anywhere even close to the 10th of November? Well, hindsight's 2020. I mean, we know this now, but back then in 1913, it's like, 
We can get another one in, boys, before the ice comes. Come on. Let's do this. It's De Niro. The Armistice Day storm of 1940, which started on the 10th, went into the 11th, was probably as fierce as the big blow of 1913, they say here. But it was concentrated mostly over Lake Michigan and did not take as many lives. But still, like, just as great, uh, magnificent, and powerful. The old Carl Bradley in the late 50s went down in mid-November. The old Fitz, right about the same time. So the, the storms are pretty wild out on the Great Lakes. Well, in November especially. And again, we always come back to, you know, being Michigan boys ourselves, we always come back to the, the size of the Great Lakes and getting people to understand them. You know what the, the deepest lake in the world is, Randall? Is it Bacal? It is, is it Bacal. Superior? Yeah. Da! I know. <laughs> uh, twelve, like twelve thousand square miles. Lake Bacall is. How deep? Five thousand feet deep. That's it's a deep, deep, deep lake. It's like filling in the Grand Canyon. You've heard of uh, Lake Tanganyika? Oh yeah, we go there every every uh, May for our, our spring getaway. Where the crocodiles swim. That's another big one in, in Africa. Another like 12,000 square miles of lake. What's another big lake that you can think of? Hmm. The, the Great Salt Lake. That's a pretty big one. The Great Salt Lake. 1,700 square miles of lake. Yeah, now people look at Lake Tahoe. Right, is a like a big, beautiful, giant mountain lake, gorgeous lake. Hang on, I'm gonna I've been doing this water and coffee. I gotta go take a quick <laughs> pee break. Okay, no worries. Hang on, I'll be right back. I'm gonna freshen up myself. Hey! Are you going diving this weekend? Keep your mask clear with the one, the only, PFAR. The professional's choice. 100% all natural. Reliable clarity. PFAR. Refill daily. Keep your mask clear. Never fear. PFAR with PFAR. What about uh, old Lake Victoria? Lake Victoria. Is that up there? Enormous lake. 26,000 some odd square miles. Yeah. So very big in size. Largest lake in Africa. But, I mean, Lake Superior alone is over 30,000 square miles. The Great Lakes together make up nearly 100,000 square miles of surface area. And Superior being over 1,000 feet deep, Huron and Michigan, uh, Ontario, are I think are all seven, 800 feet deep. Erie's like two-something in depth. So just massive amounts of water that are big enough to create their own unique weather patterns. 
And because of the the water temperatures and the way the storms roll in over these areas, you know, we're, we're here we are looking at this hurricane moving through the Caribbean right now, coming up into Florida again. We'll sit and we'll watch these weather patterns develop on the news for three, four days as these hurricanes build up. The unique thing about the Great Lakes is these can pop up within 24 hours go from being nothing to being these great storms that happen it's amazing stuff i'd like to uh i think we'll have to take a take a show and i'm going to try to find something about a couple of these cool old great lakes captains stories of these cool old captains might be fun (laughs) okay just, uh, yeah, beware of getting off the diving, although, I, th- I mean, it, it is diving still, I guess. Yeah, we'll, we'll always yeah. bring it back to diving. Got to bring it back to diving I, I think the people, I think the people might dig some cool Great Lakes captain yeah. stories. You know, in November's Fury, he starts talking about the wind. He says, the extraordinary height of the waves cresting on the lakes, such as the rogue wave towering over the Waldo, and those observed by other captains out in the storms was rare but not unprecedented on the Great Lakes. The same could be said about the wind velocity. When the Weather Bureau eventually issued its report on the storm in its monthly weather review, it noted that the endurance of the strong winds was as influential in wave height as the actual wind velocity. It said in the report, while higher winds have been recorded in connection with other disturbances, the velocities experienced in this storm were at the most stations far above the verifying limits for wind storms. And they continued so long as to cause extraordinarily high seas, which swept the lakes with tremendous force. You know, we were were up there, what, a year or so ago in June to dive on the Morel. Remember how crazy and sustained those winds were those first couple days? Yeah, they just keep going. There's nothing stopping them, though. I mean, it's such a long, a long area, a long, uh, a vast expanse of nothing in the way to stop the winds. So they just keep gaining momentum, I guess. Wind is the main factor in the development of waves. Even a very light breeze carries enough energy and friction to move water and create waves. The higher the wind velocity, the more water moved, the greater the height of the waves. The height and ferocity of waves is reflected by fetch, the distance a wave travels without being broken. Wind pushing waves over vast expanses, such as the lengths of the Great Lakes, can create the type of monsters seen by Captain Duddleson and others. The energy and power in these waves are tremendous. He mentions in another book called Isaac Storm, the historic hurricane that devastated Galveston in 1900. He says, Eric Larson described the sheer force generated by the kind of waves on Lake Michigan and Lake Superior and later Lake Huron A single cubic yard of water weighs about 1,500 pounds. A wave 50 feet long and 10 feet high has the static weight of over 80,000 pounds. Moving at 30 miles an hour, it generates enough forward momentum of over 2 million pounds. That's just crazy numbers to, to try to put together, man. 
and, and now even, you know even comprehend. Yeah, and now you know why a Great Lakes freighter can be sunk in those waves. Not only sunk, yeah. like sna- like metal snapped. snapped in half, yeah. like ripped in half, like like tearing like the foil of a gum wrapper is what some of the steel <laughs> looks like on some of these wrecks that are laying at the bottom of the Great Lakes. Yeah, just destroyed. Just uh, yeah, it's just like gushing up some tin foil in your hand, some aluminum foil. They don't use tin foil anymore, right? That simple, that easy. So, on that day. Or in that storm, that 1913 storm, I got a list of all the ships that sank during the storm, killing their entire crews. The old Isaac Scott was a 524-foot, 54-foot-wide freighter, originally launched in 1909. Hmm. The price, the one that we were just talking about, right, the, the, the price is the classic that's like one of the most classic ones from the great store because it had such a great story to it, uh, known as the mystery ship because it was, you could see the hull of it, you know, there on the 11th and 12th, it was just kind of bobbing and floating at the surface and nobody knew what it was, but that's another 524 foot, 54 foot wide beam, 30 foot high ship launched in 1910, you know, so still relatively new ship. The Argus was another steel hold mm-hmm. ship, right? That's another wreck out there. Mm-hmm. It's a big one. Four, 436 feet in length, 50 feet wide, 28 feet high, right? So, uh, like these huge ships, but completely engulfed in wave height out there. The Henry Smith, 545 feet long, 55 feet wide. The Hydrus which I think is the most recently discovered of the 1913 shipwrecks, discovered about five years ago, 436 feet long, 50 feet wide. I mean, these are all like beasts of wrecks, right? The John McGean, another 400 and something footer. The James Carruthers, which is still yet to be discovered, 550 feet long, almost 60 feet wide in size. I think this was like the biggest ship that went down in the Great Storm. The old Regina and the Wexford. The Regina is a fun, big shipwreck. Only 250 feet in length. Yeah, it's not humongous. I need. But when you're on it, I mean, it's a it's a big ship. But you realize like the size, like that one. You know, is you know well, that one was was built in 1907, a little bit earlier than those other ones. But a big steel ship, 250 feet long, nothing in comparison to the size of some of the other ones. Oh no! I mean, like in the same kind of size for the Wexford. I mean, the Wexford's another one that is about 250 feet in length. There was the Lee Field, the Plymouth which is another one that's yet to be discovered. And the LV-82 Buffalo. Military. Little little old uh, 95-foot-long military ship. Yeah, a lot went down. People don't, uh, well, I don't think a lot of people realize the Great Lakes are not like uh, any other lakes. Have you ever had people, uh, you know, taking them to the Great Lakes when they come to visit? And they've never seen the Great Lakes. You know, we've had friends in uh, 
people that have never seen the Great Lakes that grew up in California or grew up in uh, Taiwan, we had them come over here, and so we took them to uh, to the Great Lakes to see them, and they couldn't. They were just astounded by the size, you know, just because it's labeled lake. You have an idea in your mind what it should look like. And then when you get to the shore of the Great Lakes and it's water as far as you can see. Well, it's a funny story because I was just listening to this conversation recently about how if you take a kid from the Great Lakes area who's been to Lake Michigan, Lake Superior, Lake Huron, right, and you you take them out to the California coast, right, mm-hmm. to look at the Pacific Ocean, they will consider it showing up to the lake. Yeah. <laughs> right? and, and, if you, and if you took a kid to the, you know, from California, the coast of California, and took them to those beautiful sandy shores of southern Lake Michigan, they would think that they were at the ocean. Or even northern Lake Michigan. <laughs> Yeah, or they, even or even central Lake Michigan. I was going to say Lake Michigan that um that east coast of Lake Michigan is is all sandy beach. For the, for the most part there's dunes. At, the dunes are all up that that like west wide side of the state. expansive sandy beach. Yes, huge dunes. Not it, not just beautiful. like a 10-foot not a 10-foot strip of sand like No. No, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. The shadow didn't last two hours on the open water. The wind. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's some bad luck. Is that what shadow means? Yeah, shadow. Bad luck. Really pulled a shadow on this pull- one. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, are, are you going out? Are you taking your boat out today? Why, yes, I am. Don't pull a shadow. Don't. That pile of shadow. He says the winds were stirring up heavy seas and Captain Lyons had seen enough over the short distance between Fort William, his port of departure, and Pie Island, a small island running southwest to northeast at the mouth of Thunder Bay, just north of Isle Royal, a large, long island running southwest to northeast in northern Lake Superior. Isle Royal traditionally offered rough sailing in storms. Not only were the waters around it especially turbulent, but the island also funneled waves along its coastline in ways that allowed huge seas to build when a storm was out of the southwest. Lyons decided that there was no way he was going to take his boat anywhere near Isle Royal. Not in these seas. Not at this time of night. He would drop anchor, wait to see if the nasty weather blew through overnight, and proceed down the lake at first light. And, After and de- wait for his bacon to be cooked so he could <laughs> check check the, uh, the the patterns in the bacon. And wait to see if it, that old niggle in his, his ankles disappeared. And... <laughs> After getting outside of Thunder Cape, he wrote later, there was a heavy sea running from the southwest and a strong breeze. I went back under Pie Island letting go anchor at 10 o'clock and laying there until 3.30 in the morning of the 7th when the wind went north and we proceeded on our voyage. It was the first of several good decisions Lion would make over the next 48 hours. (laughs) But then there was that one bad decision. So this is talking about uh, the, the wreck of the Waldo. Where's Waldo? 
Waldo, Waldo. Waldo is up off of the uh, Keweenaw Peninsula. He's hard to see because uh, the way he's drawn in the map, he can, he can, it looks like everything else. Um, and he's talking about old Captain Duddleson at the helm. With a vested interest in the boat, Duddleson was not inclined to gamble when the sky darkened and the waves began to build. He now stood with his second mate and wheelsman in the pilot house and tried to decide the best course of action. The storm showed no sign of letting up. If anything, it was getting stronger. Duddleson considered making a run for the Keweenaw Peninsula, which was about 45 miles to the southwest. They could drop anchor in the lee of one of the peninsula's small islands and wait until daylight, at the very earliest, before choosing whether to continue. Duddleson heard the wave a few moments before it hit. By God, stand for a big one, he shouted. <laughs> Here it comes. The wave, the kind of rogue that sailors heard about but never saw, rose high over the stern of the vessel and crashed down with tremendous destructive force. The wave carried away the front of the pilot house, both sides in the front of the Texas L.H. Feger, the Waldo's second mate, said, It tore things loose in the captain's room, bent the steel deck of the compass room, wrecked the compass and swept the wheelsmen out of the wheelhouse. That's what one wave did. And um, the um, so later, and they described this really well in that podcast Terry was telling us about. Yeah. About how the, the captain was trying to, make his way to some safety when the rudder snapped Ouch. and then they, and then they were just yeah, unable to steer and ended up getting wrecked up on the rocks. It's, it's a really, really wild story. Yikes. That's something you don't want to lose. They say here in November's fury that the hope of getting to the Keweenaw to safety was dissolved. He says when the Waldo's rudder quit answering the wheel, possibly due to its being torn off on one of the many occasions when the boat's stern was lifted out of the water by a giant wave when rudely slammed back down. Or it might have been when that the rudder had simply become disabled from the stress. When the wheel went slack, Duddleson knew that he and his crew were in the hands of a merciless force. The Waldo was drifting toward what was originally intended to be a shelter. Meeting it now meant the demise of the boat and the men on board. Elsewhere on Lake Superior, passengers on the Huronic, a 320-foot cruise ship. Cruise ship. Could you imagine going for a cruise <laughs> in November on Lake Superior? <laughs> that sounds like not too much fun. Well, it's when the rates are the best. They do two for well, ones in November. There's a reason for that, yeah. Passengers witnessed a terrifying first-hand demonstration of why the Great Lakes could be a nightmare in November. Offering a maximum passenger occupation of 562 passengers, the Huronic was on her final cruise of the season. Beautifully appointed with upscale staterooms, ballrooms, observation decks, and bars, the Huronic offered a week-long cruise that stopped at ports along Lake Superior's coastline. Sounds fun until you get a little storm rolling up. James B. Potter, 
a passenger on the Huronic, was terrified by the force of the storm. Snow and sleet blinded us, he said. He recalled a few weeks afterwards. The docks and engine room were solid ice. The ship was an iceberg. The wind blew 80 miles an hour and the snow striking the pitching vessel froze as it stuck. The ship tossed and lurched and creaked and trembled. It was a terrible sea, a wicked sea, such as I never saw before. Inside the ship, men were thrown like toys and furniture was broken to bits. How could such a thing happen on a goddamn lake? exclaimed another frightened passenger. On a goddamn Goddamn lake. lake. (laughs) Well, that's because the good old Great Lakes are... More than just goddamn lakes. They are the inland seas. Do not underestimate them, yes. And that's it. Many years later, over a hundred years later, a couple hundred years, right? Uh, if we look back to, what was it, uh, the late 1600s when the very first shipwreck, Le Griffon, from old Captain uh, uh, LaSalle, right? Uh, how, how big was the Griffin, allegedly? Le Griffon was a uh, 40 feet. It was a 40-foot ship. Is it uh, really the, a ship? The, the, Is it really a Le, ship? The, the Le Griffon was a, a, like a 40-foot ship. Was it a ship, though? Was it really a ship? Oh, it was a ship. Was it a boat? No, no, this was a ship. Was it a yacht, maybe? No, this looked like an old <laughs> classic sailing ship. Uh, he, he was using it uh, to trade, uh, do fur trading, kind of get fur from uh, New York over to Milwaukee. And back, and uh, that is the official very first shipwreck in the Great Lakes. Well, accounted, accounted, accounted shipwreck. Because before this, it was really just canoes that were out wow. there. This was like the first real ship. As far as we know, right. Official. So if it's official, it must be true. So there you go. And ever since 1679, when that ship went down, we've had a culture of shipwreck diving here in these lovely great lakes and uh maybe next week we'll actually talk about diving shipwrecks and something that you actually tuned <laughs> and something that you may have actually tuned in for and maybe we'll get to that next week we'll get back to some diving but i thought this was just a fun a fun day you know, a couple of my new books showed up and uh listening to that show the other day and talking about stuff Monday night at the Zoom really got me talk thinking about just a general talk about the Great Lakes and the storms on the Great Lakes because they're so dramatic and especially as windy as it's been these last couple days beautiful sights people come and visit us this summer and come do some Great Lakes shipwreck diving with us if COVID allows us by, by then well I mean we still got out this year a few times so all right, everybody. Well, hey, thanks for joining us. On that note, should we, uh, let's uh, yeah, let's wrap it up, and we'll uh, we'll call this one a day. Okay, fellas, it's All been right, good everybody. to know you. <laughs> <laughs> Sign the logbooks. Yeah, yeah, Brando. Yep. How could such a thing happen in <laughs> a goddamn podcast? It's games. All right, everybody. We'll see you next week for some more scuba diving. Safe diving. Blah, blah, blah,
Hey, it's November. November is here. The, the gales are blowing, matey. Is it no shave November for you, James? Because um, you're somewhat shaven. I, I just shaved Monday. And we're into double-digit November. You you should not have been shaving. I always like a, a, to stay clean-shaven once to twice a week. <laughs> I don't know how those people find the time to have that perfect shave every day. Oh, it's a it's a habit. I used to do it every day, except on the weekends or whatever. When I, if I had a day off, I didn't have to be in uniform. But you had to shave. Carried a razor with me in my pocket. You you mean a switchblade? No, no. It's a you don't carry a switchblade in the service. Who do you think I am? Do you think I'm part of the Sharks and Jets? I I was living West Side Story. I was gonna say. I mean, I, I carried a switchblade comb in my pocket. <laughs> I could see you doing that. You had your big wallet with the chain and your switchblade comb. Damn right. And you're like, back off. I'm a rebel. 